Sunday of Lent, and Lent historically has been kind of modeled after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, and how um, the Holy Spirit led him out into the desert to, to pray and to fast and kind of be prepared for the onslaught of Satan in his public ministry. And so historically for the church, Lent has been a time of kind of reflection and repentance and uh, kind of laying our lives before God and Jesus and, and saying, Lord, where are there inconsistencies? Uh, where uh, do you need to, to heal me and forgive me and change me and those kinds of, of things? And so it's, we, we're taking a few weeks during this Lent season as we get to uh, Easter Sunday in a couple of weeks to look at the life of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus. And, and you may say that's just, oh, okay, that, that sounds, oh, you guys do that all the time. Well, uh, as I shared last week, some of my hang-ups and some of my challenges as a, a young believer, uh, even before um, I went to seminary and Bible calls and all those things, was we talk so much about the death of Jesus, and we talk so much about the resurrection of Jesus, as we, we should. We sing about those things. Um, but what about his life? What can we learn from Jesus's life, his humanity? What does it have to say to us? Because a lot of times we treat Jesus's life just kind of this throwaway thing where he's just kind of living his life, but it's all about the cross. It's all about the resurrection. Everything in between doesn't really matter. Um, but if Jesus is the perfection of humanity, if, if the scriptures say that we are to be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, then I think his life has something to say. If we are redeemed by the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, then I think his life has something to say of how we live our own lives and how we think about discipleship and walking with uh, Christ. And so last week we looked at Jesus in Matthew 4 and his temptation and, and how um, he used the scriptures to fight off temptation, that Jesus was a word-centered, uh, if you want to say, well, we are, a word-centered disciple, and he was teaching us how to be word-centered people, that, that the word of God is how we fight temptation. The word of God, the promises of God, the truths of God should saturate our lives in such a way uh, that when temptation comes and struggle comes, that we could call on the scriptures to remember that God is with us and God is not against us if we are in, in Christ Jesus. And we see that in Jesus' life. As a Jewish man, he would have grown up knowing the, the first five books of the Bible, probably the old, all the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. He, he could have uh, uh, cited the Shema. But, but we also talked about how the word of God is, is for our obedience. That Jesus will say in, 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 John, 4, in uh, John 13, that, that if we love God, we'll do what he says, right? So, so obedience is part of our love. That's how we do love God with all of our hearts, mind, soul, and strength. It's not just to be hearers of God's word, but also to be doers, as James says. And so obedience is essential for understanding what the word of God is for us. And, and here's the thing. Obedience isn't God being a killjoy, it's God saying, I want to enhance your joy because I know how the universe works. And if we try to live apart from him and his ways and his commands, it just goes bad and it goes bad often, right? Any humans in the room? Okay, just check in. It, it, it goes bad often because God has wired the universe in such a way to work when we stay close to him and his ways and commands. When we try to go outside of that and, and, and not follow his commands, it leads to death and destruction, what appears, as the proverb says, what, what appears right to man is, only leads to, to death. So with that, this morning, I want to look at Matthew chapter 6, and I want to talk about what it means to be a prayer-driven disciple. So last week we talked about being word-driven, but we want to talk about being a prayer-driven disciple. Now, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you will see Jesus praying all the time. 
He's going out to the wilderness to pray. He's fasting. He's praying. He's spending time with the Lord. When it was time to choose his disciples, he's out praying uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane at his, his moment of weakness. He's going to go to the cross. Lord, take this cup from me. He's pl- praying and pleading. Uh, even on the cross, he's, he's praying for people on the cross. He's, he's quoting Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's a man of constant prayer. And I want to submit, and I want to take, uh, and I don't think this is a stretch at all, um, that in Luke chapter 11, the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. And I think the reason they asked that was not because they didn't know how to pray, or they were Jewish men, and most of them would have known, probably spent their whole lives praying. But they saw Jesus praying all the time and said, what, how do you do that? Like, your praying seems a little different. And so we see that in Luke chapter 11. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 6, with Luke 11 as little snippets of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray, one of his most famous prayers. And I think it's significant that the Lord, what we call the Lord's Prayer, and, and I want to argue that I think it should be called the Disciples' Prayer. I know it's from the Lord, but it's like for us. Like he's teaching us how to pray, like his disciples, and we are disciples, right? Okay, I don't have time for that, but, but just a little thing I was thinking about this week. But, but, but anyway, I, I don't know who thought of the Lord's Prayer. I don't know who can take credit for that, but that's in your Bible and your ESV, and those little headings came a lot later, so they're not from heaven. Um, but I would put it asterisk, disciples' prayer, because he's teaching us how to pray. How do we commune with God? How do we talk to God? How do we petition God? How do we ask God for things? What does that look like? And it seems like Jesus knew what prayer was. He knew what communion with God was. He knew what dependence and reliance on God was. And he gives us this prayer right in the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount really is about what does it look like to live in God's kingdom? What does it look like to be his disciple in his world? And that's why you have all these different themes and subjects about fasting and laying up treasures and divorce and, and taking oaths and anger and, and being salt and light and retaliation and loving your enemies and all the things that make our lives go sideways and will make the society go sideways. Jesus addresses those right in the Sermon on the Mount. And one of those things right dab smack in the middle is how do we pray? How do we pray? So Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. I'm going to read 5 to 15. I'm going to read the whole little section there. And then we'll, we'll jump in together. So Matthew chapter 6, Jesus preaching and teaching on the Sermon on the Mount says this in Matthew 6 verse 5. And when you pray, petition, ask, that's what the word prayer means. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask them. Instead, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of God for us this morning. How many of you have prayed the Lord's Prayer? 
sometime in your life. Maybe grew up in even a tradition in church. You maybe prayed it every uh, Sunday, maybe in the Catholic tradition and other traditions. You, you, you prayed this prayer, right? It's the, it's the, the Jesus prayer. It's the, the Lord's prayer. It's the prayer of all, all prayers. But I want to first start with, because I think Jesus gives us right before the prayer some warnings about the posture of how we actually are to pray. And I, don't read these as kind of throw away, like, okay, that's nice. Maybe there's some struggles with some other people praying. I don't think it's that hard to pray. We just need to pray. But obviously, Jesus cares about the posture in which we pray. So let's talk about the posture in prayer, because I, I don't want us to also, I don't want us to see this prayer as some kind of law or some kind of magic incantation or some kind of formula for praying. It's not something meant to just be said over and over. And we get a little insight into why that is because of what Jesus says before he gets into the Lord's prayer. So, so the posture of prayer, notice what he says. There's this hypocritical kind of praying that we can do. Verse 5, when you pray, you must be not like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. A hypocrite is a two-faced person, someone who wears a mask. That's what the Greek word actually means. So, so in, in, in one, one way, they look very spiritual. They look very pietistic. They, they, they look very, very holy. But Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, the two-faced people, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, here's where it gets a little complicated. There's nothing wrong with praying and being seen by others. Is there? Is there? Like, I don't know. Jesus just said there is. So I'm not really confused here, Pastor. No. Like we're called to pray together, right? So how do you pray with other people, right? We're to pray for one another. We don't do that in isolation, right? So, so you're going to see me. I'm going to see you. That, that's not what Jesus is concerned here. He's saying there are hypocrites, two-faced people that look one way, but actually their, their heart and their posture towards God is not for the reward of God and friendship with God. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues at the street corners that they may... Um, Sorry, I missed my place. That they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. What's the reward? That they be seen by others. That's all they care about. So, so it's not about communion with Father. It's not about uh, the love of God. It's not about a relationship with God. Actually, the reward that they're after, the posture of their heart is, I want to be seen by others to be seen as someone who loves God. That's my goal. That's the motivation of the heart. And Jesus says, well, you're a hypocrite. Now, Jesus mentioned this right before that in the giving as well. Beware of practicing your righteousness in verse one there before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. Same thing. He says, if you're going to go give and you're going to be generous, he's like, the whole point is not to, to, to show off how generous you are. It's to get the reward of your father who's in secret. But that's why we give, right? That's why we, we pray. The reward is God himself. It's not to be seen by others because that's a terrible reward, isn't it? Because if I'm on the street corner and I'm praying and I'm going, hey, Blaine, look at me. Look how spiritual I am, right? And then you go, awesome, pastor. You're so holy and spiritual. And you get me a slap on the back. The only reward I get is the slap on the back from Blaine. And that's not a very good reward. I like you, Blaine. But that's just not going to do it. That's not why I pray. That's not why we are to pray. That's why Jesus warns us about the postures um, of our, our hearts. He, he says that about fasting in verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fasting may be seen by others. Like the whole point of fasting is it's not like, I'm, look, I'm fasting. Look at my, I'm so hungry. I'm so, right? That's not the point. The point is 
to do that in secret, to do it, to commune with God, to know God, to have God break things in us so that God could be enough for us. That thirst, physical thirst, wouldn't be our only thirst, but there'd be a thirst for God as well. So Jesus seems to care about the posture of how we pray, that we wouldn't be two-faced and say, hey, look at me, look how spiritual I am. But rather, what is the reward that you seek? Well, we know the reward is God himself, God's presence, God's friendship. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He'll reward you with himself, with his friendship, with his presence, with answering prayers. So don't worry about being on the street corner and looking spiritual and, and holy and godly. He says, hey, think about your heart and say, who, who, why are you really praying? And again, we can pray with other people, obviously. But I think a lot of our praying and a, and a bulk of our praying should be done in, in secret. Because it also reveals our hearts in those moments, doesn't it? Like, why am I even praying in the first place? Is, is God just an ATM machine? You know, i got a problem, God... You could fix that by this afternoon. There's nothing wrong with sharing our problems. We'll get into that. But, but what is my heart posture? Is it because, well, my pastor said I have to pray. My wife said I should probably pray. My friend, I read a blog, said I should pray. But it's not about knowing God. It's not the reward of having God. It's not building and cultivating a friendship with God. It's something else. It's something else. And the reason I'm using that language of friendship and relationship is because In other places in the scripture, God teaches us on prayer, like in Luke chapter 18, you may have heard this parable before, about the persistent widow, I don't know if you remember this, but Jesus is teaching his disciples again on praying, in uh, Luke 18, and he says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because the widow keeps bothering me... (laughs) I love that. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continually coming. (laughs) Amazing. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? He tells this parable and he says, do you, do you know what this parable is about, church? He says, it's about friendship with God. Do you think God's an unjust judge who doesn't care what you need and isn't going to ask you quickly? He says his, his elect, his friends, his people that are, have a relationship with God, he's God, he's your father, he loves you, he knows every hair on your head, he knows exactly what you need before you need it. You don't think he's going to reward you? You don't think he's going to answer you? You don't think he's going to listen to you? Of course he is. But it all depends on how you see him. You think he's just a judge that just goes, Ryan, can you just stop asking? Just a whiny baby. Like, I know about your hangnail, okay, guy? Get over it. But what if the hangnail is the thing that's just really after my soul that day? Now, that's not a real-life example. I have bigger issues than hangnails, but sometimes it's an ankle that's sore because of a comforter indigestion, you know, as I get older, too much peanut butter, whatever it is. 
No, no, there's bigger things, right? There's, 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 there's spouse needs, there's family needs, there's sickness, there's cancer, there's, there's people I know that don't know, know, know Christ, but, but God doesn't get tired of you. Like I hear a lot of people say that, well, God doesn't really care about the little details of your life. He doesn't? Since when? He cares about every detail. He cares about every hair on your head. He cares about everything that's bothering you, every, everything that's going on in your life. It's significant to, to God because he's a loving father. It has more to do with how we see God than less how God is. He says, come to me and bother me. I love when my kids bother me, right? Those of you who have kids, it's just bothering us all day long. That's what parenting is. Tell me it's not. And you're a liar. Like, I just got you a snack. Are we kidding me right now? You need another one? You need drink? You, you climb up the counter and you get that stinking drink. I'm not, I'm not your servant. Right? It's pestering, but what does a loving father do? And probably doesn't respond like that, but he, but he says, okay, let, let me get, I know you can't reach the cups. I mean, can you just grow already, please? Right? I know you're helpless. Because God in some way knows we're helpless too and weak. It has more to do with how we see God, the reward of God himself. That's why Jesus cares about the posture of our hearts. It's not about law. It's not about, okay, I've got to make sure I'm not two-faced, but it's about considering when we go into the presence of God and we, 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 we plead with him and we ask for things and we praise him or whatever we're, we're doing, we're not doing it so that people see us, but we're doing it so that we can get more of God and understand more of who he is and relate to him as you would a friend. So God is our word. There's also another warning that Jesus mentions before we get into the Lord's, Lord's Prayer. What I'm going to call meaningless and empty prayers. Meaningless and empty prayers. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. You can translate that, pagans, those that don't know God, non-Jewish people. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So, so in the Gentile world, non-Jewish world in the first century, they would have had many different gods. And, and so their, their relationship with the gods, lowercase g, would have been heaping up all kinds of prayers and hoping that a god would answer their prayer. So he says, don't be like them. Don't just kind of say, well, there's you know, a pantheon of gods. I'm just going to throw up. Maybe he'll, he'll answer me about fertility. Maybe he'll answer me about food. Maybe he'll answer me about a job, whatever it is. So, so the babbling thing, the meaningless thing is just, hey, if anyone's out there, can you please answer me? Kind of in a tough bind here. So Jesus says, don't be a hypocrite. Don't put on a face and try to be seen by man as something you're not, but come honestly before God because God's your reward. But he also says, don't heap up meaningless, empty prayers. Don't babble. Don't heap up words that are empty and meaningless. Prayers that aren't thoughtful and honest from the heart. Because don't you... Now, okay, based on Luke 18 that we, we read there, this doesn't mean we don't keep asking God for things either. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying repetition is bad. Like, hey, he hasn't come through yet. I'm still asking for that prayer, that answered prayer, right? We have people in our church that are struggling with cancer. Like, God, okay, we're, we're asking again. He's not saying stop babbling. He's not saying that. He's saying, but, but meaningless and empty prayers that mean nothing. You don't even know who you're addressing. You're just kind of throwing them scattershot 
into the world. You're not contemplating and thinking about who I am, my love, my goodness, my power, my sovereignty in all things. Don't just heap up things and not think about what you're doing. I do care about your heart. I do care about your posture. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. That's how Jesus kind of levels, and he says, here's why the, the heaping up empty phrases and meaningless phrases. He says, God knows your needs, even before you ask him. Now, we should still ask him. That's not, he's not trying to tr- trick us. But he's saying, do you know who I am? Like, like do you know I'm sovereign God? I, I have everything in your hand. I know every hair on your head. I, I know what you need, and I, need more, you, I know more than you even know. I know what you need and how you need. I know you better than you even know you. But that gets us away from the empty babbling that we can come to God honestly and go, God, I know you're a good father. I know that you care for your children. Jesus says in Luke 11, when the disciples ask him about um, learning how to pray, he gives that little famous phrase and he says, well, what do you think God would give his, his kids a stone or give them a snake? Of course not. Like it's Jesus using humor again. I mean, the audience would have been like, what do you think, if you ask God for something, he's just going to give you a stone or a snake or a scorpion? Of course not. He's your father. He's going to give you good gifts. He loves you, right? It's like my kid's coming to me and just going, Dad, hey, can we, can we, have, um, can we have mac and cheese tonight? There's a lot of cheese products in our home, just how it is, usually if Dad's cooking. And I go, no, what? no, son, tonight we're having Spam. Now, some of you may like spam. Maybe that illustration doesn't work, but spam is awful. <laughs> like, spam is like people store that stuff in bunkers, like when the zombies come and it all goes haywire. Like, you don't give your kids spam if you love them. You just don't. We go mac and cheese with hot dogs. Old school. But it's how we see our God and how he gives good gifts to his children. Jesus is more concerned with the posture of our heart. This isn't law. This isn't, you know, we've got to make sure we get it just right. But it's just, how do we come to God? How do we see God? Now, so posture of prayer now, framework of prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. And you've, you've heard this many times, maybe heard it preached many times. So he says, pray like this instead. So, so here's how we can pray. Again, not a magic incantation, not a formula, not, this isn't magic. It's not something we just say over and over again, and then God, we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but look how he, he says to pray, our Father in heaven. It starts with an address. And it says, our Father. Now, it establishes relationship. He doesn't say our God, our Lord. He actually says our Father. Now, why is that significant? Because all the way back in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you probably didn't think I was going to go there, did you? 2 Samuel chapter 7, there's a little prophecy that says there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come and he's actually going to call God his Father. And they're going to have a father-son relationship. And he's going to come through the line of David. We know, ultimately, Jesus Christ. And what's so interesting about Jesus, what I'll get to in just a minute, is that he's always getting in trouble for calling God Father, isn't he? How dare you call him Father? Who are you? You blasphemer? But by him even saying Father, he was, he was basically just saying, well, 2 Samuel 7, verse 11... I know you guys read this this morning. It says, From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest... From all my enemies, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So, so what he's saying, he says, there's, there's going to be, you know, th- these kings are not going to do it. They're going to fail. Saul, Saul's not going to do it. David's not going to do it. But through David's line will come a, a messianic king who's going to relate to God as father and as son. He, they're going to be to Israel what Israel never could be. Israel was even described as a father and son relationship, but they failed in every way. So here's Jesus coming on the scene. He's addressing God as our father, or we could say my father. And the Jews of his day would have been, are you kidding me right now? We don't talk to God like that. We barely speak the name of God. And here's Jesus calling him daddy. Abba. In the Aramaic, it's daddy. Do you remember when Jesus was in the temple in Luke chapter 2? But you skimmed over this. I have many times. They go to Passover. Jesus gets lost. Mary and Joseph, where'd he go, right? He's in the temple learning from, from the rabbis, learning the scriptures. I, I hinted at this last week. And he says in Luke chapter 249, he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? That's not Joseph's house. That's God the father, right? So this Messiah, this, this, this one who is to come through the line of David has come and he says, when you address God, you address him as father because you have a relationship with this God. We are his kids. He is our king and he is our Lord. He is daddy. I mentioned this, that Jesus was always getting in trouble by calling God father. In John chapter 5, uh, 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And then you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter uh, 26. Uh, 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So could you not watch for me an hour? Watch and pray. The Spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 42. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The name in Jewish culture meant a lot. It was an identifier. It established relationship. So Jesus is saying, when you address God, you address him as father. You address him as daddy. And I know for some of us in this room, we didn't have great fathers. Maybe our fathers weren't around. Maybe they were abusive. I understand that. But, but this father is a million times better than any earthly father, even great fathers, by the way. A father who doesn't ever get exhausted like our earthly fathers. Amen, young dads? Can we just get a nap? Good Lord, come quickly. Who never gets impatient like earthly fathers. Who's never stingy like earthly fathers. Who doesn't give good gifts to his children. But this father knows us in every single way. Who comforts us and loves us and surrounds us with grace and mercy. Who doesn't treat us as we deserve. This is a different kind of father. This is a different kind of ballgame. And that's the father that Jesus knew. And that's the kind of father that we know if we are in Christ 
Jesus. Because if you've seen the Father, you've seen the Son. If you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what the Father is like, you look to Jesus. That's what John 14 says. Right? You want to know how he works and how he loves and how he provides. You look to the Father and see the Son and see the Son and see the Father and how they work in the world. And that's the Old Testament too, by the way. I love what the um, Heidelberg Catechism says in uh, Lord's Day 46, one of our confessions. It says, why did Christ command us to call God our Father? Here's the answer. At the very beginning of our prayer, Christ wants to kindle in us what is basic to our prayer. The childlike awe and trust that God through Christ has become our Father Our fathers do not refuse us the things of this life. God, our Father, will even less refuse to give us what we ask in faith. We address God as our Father to kindle in us awe and wonder and trust like a child does before their father, right? We're his kids. We're his sons and daughters. A lot of us don't see God like that. He's angry all the time. He's reluctant. Ah, sinned again. Probably going to hell for that one. But it's to kindle in us, Daddy, I'm having a hard day. Daddy, I'm weak. Daddy, I want to love my wife, and I want to love my kids, and I want to love my neighbor the way I should, but it's so hard, and everything in me wants to do the exact opposite. God, help me, Daddy. Dad, the diagnosis is not good. Dad, we lost a job. Help provide, please. Right? This is a different kind of relationship. See, with Jesus, when we look at Jesus and we see the Christian faith, I know a lot of us, we think it as in terms of religion. And, and I, I just don't think anything in the scriptures give us the sense that Jesus was really interested in starting a new religion. But really, he was just continuing on what was handed, even through the Old Testament, handed down to us to cultivate a, a relationship and, and God to cultivate a people that would love him and worship him and know him. That's what this prayer is all about. Our Father, our Daddy. I wanted to just spend a little time there. I think the heaven part helps us locate where this Father is as well. He's not just a buddy. He's not just a friend. He is, yes. But he's also in heaven. He has all authority on heaven and earth. He's ruler. He's sovereign. He's good. But but again, that's not outer space. Jesus said that repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. It's right here with us. It's not that far off. So where God's rule and God's reign is, it's not as far as we think it is. He's a transcendent God. He's a sovereign God, but he's also a near God. God we can know and love and trust. And then as it moves through, hallowed be your name is the first petition. I'll move through these fairly quickly. Some of these I won't say as much about, but others. But hallowed be your name. This is the first petition of the prayer. This is the first ask, if you will. Prayer, petition, ask, same thing. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name great in my life. Set it apart, treasure it, make it lovely, make it great, make it bold, make it amazing, right? It's, it's hallowing, it's a set. We don't use hallowed very often. Halloween is maybe the closest word we get. 
but it means set apart. It means sanctified. It means your name is like no other name, but I want it to be, look so great in my life. And I also want it to make it look great in my home and in my neighborhood and in my, my work and, and wherever I find that God, your name would be lifted high, that, that people would see how great your name is, how gracious you are, how loving a father you are, what Jesus has done for us and what the Holy Spirit comes to do in us, all this that God gives. I, w- I want your name to be treasured and, and mighty and made much of. What a great great way to to pray every morning. But here's what's so beautiful about this prayer. It's a petition and an ask. Why? Because we don't always do it, do we? That's the beauty of Jesus saying, I'm teaching you how to pray. You got to ask for it. It doesn't just come naturally, does it? It's hard. Like, I wish I could say this week, you know, everything I did and everything that came out of my mouth was made God's name look great. Actually, a lot of things that came out of my mouth, a lot of things I did made God's name look awful. So, so it's a petition. He, God knows where we, God knows we need help. So he's teaching us, hey, you got to pray and ask me to help you do this. Does it grieve us that God's name isn't made great in our lives and in the world? I think when we begin to pray that, our hearts will change. Where we see it not happening, where we see where God is belittled, God is not loved, God is not seen as gracious and holy and good and a friend and amazing and ruler and sovereign and, and holy, and, and where that's not happening in my kid's life, in my neighbor's life, in my, 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 where I work, I should be grieved and compassionate and pray even more. That God's name is belittled. God doesn't need help, by the way. Because every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He doesn't need our help. But the petition is, God, make it more so. Make it more so. The second ask, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So, so as we've established this daddy, son, daughter relationship, Abba, father, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Make your name great. Make it great in my life. Make it great in our city. Make it great in the world. We begin to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. We could say, make God's rule, make Jesus' rule more so on earth as it is in heaven. Where God is is seen to be great. I mean, it's amazing how these, these prayers kind of fit together. That we see more of little hints, little tastes of what God's kingdom is like breaking in. Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at near. Repent for the kingdom of God is at near. What does that mean? Well, that, that the heavens, God's reign in heaven has broken into earth. Do you ever wonder what all the parables are about? They're about what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks in. What's Jesus doing when he heals people? And he forgives people and he loves his enemy. What's he doing? What's he enacting? Here's what the kingdom of God looks like. You know what the kingdom of God, when we see it break in, you know what it looks like? It looks like forgiveness. It looks like loving our enemies. You know what it looks like? A wedding feast. Where all the ragtag sinners of the universe are invited into the table by grace and mercy. It's not how you get in. It's not about morality. It's not about being religious. But Jesus saying, hey, this is all grace. This is all mercy. Come on in and feast. That's what the kingdom of God looks like. Matthew 13 looks like a man who sells all his possessions and buys the whole stinking field because he found this precious pearl and says, I want all of this. And he's filled with joy. That's what the kingdom of God looks like when it breaks in. 
doesn't it? When we see lives transformed, marriages healed, reconciliation happen, we see the kingdom of God break in a little bit more. Now, it's only a hint or a glimpse on this side of earth. It's not full, but it doesn't stop Jesus from telling us to pray for this every single day, does it? We don't just go, well, you know, it's not going to happen on this, 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 you know, just might as well build bunkers and fill it with spam. And if you have a bunker filled with spam, I'm, I apologize. And if you do, come talk to me. We can talk through that. But he still says to ask that more of my reign, more of my rule will break in to your life, into your neighborhood, into your workplace where Jesus has authority, where Jesus rules, where Jesus reigns, where people actually begin to take on the character of Jesus and the likeness of Jesus, where salvation reigns. Can you imagine a world like that? It's hard to imagine sometimes. But that's why all the kingdom parables, just my holy, maybe hopefully holy, sanctified imagination, when I read those parables, I just go, yes, yes. Like poor and rich people sitting together at a table. That's what I love about this church. We have people all over the map. We have people on disability. We have people that make some good change. We have different people from different backgrounds, socially, economically, ethnically. I, I love that. You know why? Because it's a little glimpse of the kingdom of God, what God does in the lives of people. And our commonality is not our ethnicity or how much money we have in the bank. It's Jesus Christ. We see a little bit of the kingdom breaking in. People that can forgive each other and love each other, even though they're very different. Uh, those parables just inflame me, excite me about what God is doing and what he can do and continue to do in our midst. A third ask is daily bread. We ask for provision, the provision of others. The key is here is daily. I want to harp on that just for a moment. Daily. Nothing wrong with asking for future things. But Jesus is very specific here. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, it's interesting because later on in the Sermon on the Mount, he'll talk about anxiety and worry. In verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather. Yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than them? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, how they neither toil nor spin. I tell you, even Solomon, all his glory was not arranged, arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after her these things, but seek the kingdom first. Any anxious, worried people in here this morning? I can almost guarantee you, I'm not a prophet, I don't know your mind, I don't know your heart, I can almost guarantee you, your anxiety and worry is based on something you cannot control and you have no guarantee will even happen. Amen? But we all do it, don't we? We create the worst possible scenario in our minds. Well, I know this is going to happen. I know I'm going to get sick. I know my kid's going to hate me. Daily bread. God's grace is sufficient today 
He says, worrying about tomorrow is not going to add one hour to your life. It's actually going to kill your faith, but to revel and say, God, for today, all just get me through the day. I love praying like that. It's a really good prayer, by the way. Anybody have to pray that way? Just, just get me through the day, right? I just need for today, daily bread. Yeah, it can, it can include food, but I think it's everything. I think it's physical needs. It's, it's whatever's going on in your life in that day. We're having a hard day. The kids are losing their minds once again. I have no energy. I have no patience. The job is going bad. Everyone's yelling at me. You know, I might lose the job. I got cancer. I got whatever it is, God. I just need your provision for today, and I know you're a good father, and I know you provide what I need for today. Forget about the five-year plan and the 10-year plan. Nothing wrong with having a five-year, ten-year plan, but I imagine if you look at your five-year, ten-year plan, it looks very different than what it is, what it was. Amen? Give me bread today. Sustain me today. Think about how bold a prayer that is, faith that is. Not that God's impressed by that, but it's like, God, I know you have what I need, like, today, till I lay my head on the pillow. Now, if you've live life for more than five minutes, you've followed Jesus for more than five minutes, you know forgiveness is huge. Fourth, ask for forgiveness. We sin constantly. We make a mess of everything we touch. Father, forgive me, but also help me forgive those who have sinned against me. It's hard, right? Again, isn't it fascinating that Jesus is giving us petitions because he knows it's stinking hard? Like, why would we ask if it was just easy? Oh, it's easy. People wrong me, betray me all the time. You know what? I've seen the grace of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God. I forgive you too. Easy. Is that your heart? (laughs) No. Is it? Anyone just go, oh, it's so easy. Like God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus. So easy to forgive you. You punched me in the face. You betrayed me. You stabbed me in the back. You abandoned me for 20 years. (laughs) Easy. Not easy. But we ask, oh God, help me. Not easy. I've seen your forgiveness. You've extended forgiveness to a sinner like me. I don't deserve any of it. And it's stinking hard to forgive other people that have wronged me. Help me. So it's a constant posture of daily, Lord, forgive me. Help me. Give me strength by your spirit. Give me grace to extend forgiveness to other people that have wronged me. It's not easy. Not easy at all. I've heard Andy say this. I've said it before. In ministry, the thing that is the biggest cancer to anyone's soul in their life with God is unforgiveness. Grudges, bitterness, they're all seeds of that, fruits of that. But not being able to forgive other people. Now, this does not give... Hear me. I just want to say this because I know forgiveness is a touchy subject. Forgiveness does not mean we say it's okay what they did. That's not what forgiveness is. It's acknowledging what they did and saying, I'm putting them before the Lord to forgive, and I'm going to forgive. It doesn't mean reconciliation either. Sometimes reconciliation is not possible. Sometimes the person that's hurt you or abused you, you shouldn't be near them or around them, or they're dead. It's not reconciliation. We're saying, but I'm going to unclog my heart because God has forgiven me. They don't deserve forgiveness. I don't even deserve forgiveness, but God, help me forgive them. doesn't mean you forget. It doesn't go away. Like anyone forgive people and it's like, you still think about the thing they did? Of course. But the difference is, I'm no longer going to hold that against them. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. I'm letting it die. 
That doesn't mean there's ramification. There's a ramification. It doesn't mean there's pain. There's, there's all kinds of things falling down around you. But God, help me. Because you've forgiven me much, how can I not forgive others? And we've hurt other people too, always, all the time. So we can't just go, well, you, got, you don't know what they've done. Well, we've done a lot of things to other people too. But it's a constant petition before God. Keep short accounts with God. And then the last petition, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil. We could, we could translate this into, lead us not into uh, a test or trial from the evil one because I don't believe that God tempts us, which he doesn't. But the enemy does in all kinds of ways. So lead us not into temptation, tests, trials, but deliver us from evil. So when evil and sin lurks in my heart, when evil and sin lurks around me, lead, help me not fall down, help me not stumble, give me the strength to say no and thank you, I'm walking away from that. The enemy still prowls like a lion, crouching, ready to destroy us all the time. But thanks be to Jesus, who's given us the victory, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We don't have to live in fear of that, but it's a constant daily, right? There's temptations all around us every single day. Just where we started our sermon series, right? Jesus was tempted just like we are, but without sin. Temptations of money and fame, right? Having our name look great, right? Social media is just helping our souls just be humble, isn't it? But we all struggle with that, right? I, I want to look smart. I, I want to look, look spiritual. I, I want to show that I have the, the, the cutest, most bubbly kids and the best wife and the best husband on the planet, Instagram, filter. We all do it. Am I just too honest this morning? I do it. But you see my beautiful family, but you didn't see the fight five minutes before that. <laughs> right? Well, I'm not going to show you that. <laughs> How dare you? But there's all kinds of temptations to be something, to be someone, to have power, to have money, to have possessions, and think that's what's ultimate in life, and that's what's going to satisfy our souls. But what's so beautiful about that prayer is that it goes all the way back to our Father and makes a nice little bow and says, but God, you are my Father, and you are good, and you are merciful, and you are kind, and you've died for me and your Son, and you've sent him to die for me and to give me the Holy Spirit, that you would be enough for me. God, help me that sin doesn't look that attractive anymore. That temptation would just die away and say, no, no, thank you. That doesn't lead to life. So protect us from the evil one. Protect him from his snare. Protect him from his things he says to us, his accusations. Remember Jesus described the enemy as the father of lies. That everything he says is a lie to you. That's his native tongue. Jesus said that, right? He's just a liar. <laughs> yeah, good Christian. Oh, you call yourself a Christian? Oh, there you go, sinning again. But then Jesus says, nothing can separate us from my love. You're forgiven. Right? We, we all believe those lies. If I just looked a little differently, if I just had the right job, if I just had the right family, if I just had this or that, we, just, we believe those lies, Right? But God comes and says, you have a daddy who loves you. Now, I find this interesting with the Lord's Prayer. The way it starts and the way it ends. The address, our Father, it starts with God. It's a little bit like 
kind of framing our hearts, hallowed be your name, let your name be great. It's about you, it's not about me, it's about your kingdom come, it's about your will be done. Now we go to petition, give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts. We know we have all kinds of sin and we, have, uh, and we also have forgiven our debtors, the ones who have sinned against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's kind of interesting, um, some scholars say that this is almost like the Ten Commandments. How's the Ten Commandments start? With God. All the commandments. It frames the relationship. Because where does our life go haywire? If the relationship with God is out of whack, guess what? All the horizontal commandments about loving our neighbors go out of whack too. Because if God's not enough for us, guess what? We're going to covet. We're going to murder. We're going to steal. Right? We're going to make images and make God into our own liking, our own image, right? If that's out of whack... That's why in, in Exodus 20, I love that Moses starts with their salvation. He says, God has redeemed you out of Egypt. He has saved you. He has redeemed you. Now, in light of that salvation, in light of that, go worship God and love your neighbor. That's where it starts. It doesn't start with, with, with pleading and asking for little details of our lives. It starts with our Father in heaven. You are my daddy, and I love you. And in light of that, your kingdom come. Your will be done. I need some bread today. I need some help today. I need some forgiveness today. I'm being tempted by the enemy today. I need some help. I'm weak. But do you see how it's framed? I don't think that's by accident. <laughs> and I also think it gets us out of that kind of, nothing wrong with ordinary prayers. Like, like I said, my hangnail, Aunt Bertha's toe, whatever. Like daily needs, of course, we want to pray for sick. But it also gets us that God has created us for his kingdom, to seek his kingdom, to be part of something a lot bigger than ourselves, to see lives changed by the gospel, to see God's kingdom break in, like your kingdom come. We want to see more of that. We want to see more people come to Christ. We want to see more people become disciples of Jesus. We want, we want to see marriages healed and relationships healed, and we want to see shootings end, and we want to see all kinds of you know, political ni- nonsense healed. We want all that, that kind of stuff. God, we want to see those big things, and, and we also those little daily things are important too. It's, it's all of it, right? But I think it helps us frame it and keeps it in right order that it's not just about my hangnail, but it's also about bigger kingdom things as well at the same time. God cares about the ordinary, and he also cares about the supernatural, extraordinary, big things that he wants to do in and through you in his church and in his kingdom. All of it. All of it. We should want all of it. So let's just close with this. Just practical very practical, nothing profound here because I just kind of walked you through how to pray the prayer, but find a quiet place, a secret place to pray. If you're a mom and you have children at home, your secret place, your quiet place is going to look different than everyone else. But you can find it. It doesn't have to be an actual physical prayer room of any kind. It can be, you know, why you take a shower for men too. Right? It's just a, it's a, just a, a place alone, right? It's just it's set aside. It could be you know in the in the kitchen when the kids are crazy and they're over there. It could be in the basement, whatever. But I think it's important that we find ways we can get alone with God. It doesn't have to be on a mountain. It doesn't have to be. It could just be in your car on the way. Redeem some of your commute time. I know some of you have commutes. Redeem that time. You got all kinds of time. You know, I know you're really fascinated by how terrible the Royals and the Chiefs are going to be this year. But you know, maybe redeem that for some prayer time. <laughs> And I listen to the Chiefs, and anyway, it doesn't matter. But, but find a, a quiet place. And then I, I, I call this warming up the heart. 
I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, I'm not just like, Jesus is the best thing on the, in the universe. It's more like, Jesus, why do you hate me, and why is the alarm going off? Anybody else? No? Like, you're exhausted, right? You need some help. Like, you're just, it's not like, maybe you're this one of those annoying people, and it's just singing hymns and reading scripture, and just like, the Lord, the Lord, have mercy on I mean, maybe that's you. Maybe you don't need this. But I need help. I need scripture. Um, I need, you know, favorite verses, promises. I may need to sing a little. I may need to turn on some music. I just, I just need help to kind of get my heart in a, in a good place to pray, right? Word of God is a great place to do that. We talked about the Psalms last week. Pick a Psalm, just kind of read it, just kind of get your heart, just kind of who God is, what, you know, just get, get warm that heart up. It's not always easy just to pray. And I'm talking about, you know, this kind of praying alone, quiet, solitude. And then I want you to pray the prayer slowly and meditatively. This isn't about magic and incantation. I want you to think about what you're praying. And then as you do it slowly, here's what's going to happen, is you're going to start praying for other things. You're going to leave kind of the, the just basic provision. You're going to go daily bread. Yeah, all kinds of daily bread to pray for, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. And then you're going to start getting specific about that. God, do that in my workplace this morning. Do that in my home. Do that in my kid's life. Do it, right? It, it'll expand your praying. We're not, we're not going to, we're going to use the, the Lord's Prayer kind of as the training wheels and it's going to expand your prayer life out, but it's going to give you a nice, robust prayer life that's going to pray about all kinds of things, not just Aunt Bertha's toe. You're going to pray for your pastor, please, good Lord. He is a mess. And the church and the kingdom and stuff in the world. And then you're going to pray for ordinary things and extraordinary, big, audacious prayers. Ordinary life stuff that's going on, bills that need to be paid, kids that are losing their minds, but also God. Bring, as we sang that song earlier, bring the gospel to the far ends of the earth. God, help my my workplace to be a place of love and joy and peace, not toxic Help my marriage to be healed. Help my friendships to be reconciled. We're going to pray big prayers. Help that cancer to be healed. That's not the way it's supposed to be, Lord. Please do something. We're going to pray all kinds of ordinary, everyday stuff, but we're going to pray some big, huge prayers. God, bring renewal and revival to Kansas City where your name would be made much of. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. When Jesus came to earth, he said that prayer very honestly. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When Jesus came, he followed the, 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 the Father, trusted the Father, loved the Father, and he said, not my will, but your will as he prayed in the garden. It just reminds us again that, that we're not where we should be. We, we never will be again. We're, this is a this is what discipleship's about and following Jesus is about. We struggle, right? This is why we need the Lord's Prayer um, to help us and reframe our hearts to God and, and, and pray the way that Jesus uh, taught us to pray. And so I'm thankful this morning that Jesus is the one who kept God's promises. He kept God's will. He, he followed. He, he, that, that prayer came true in his life because it hasn't come true in our life in every way. And so if you're a believer in Christ, we just invite you to come to the table. The body um, 
represented by the broken body of Christ, the bread, excuse me, the, the cup represented by the shed blood of Christ, that he broke his body and shed his blood for you to forgive us because of our hearts say, my will be done, not yours. But God came to do something about that, to redeem us and restore us back to the Father to give us salvation and a new life. And so we're thankful for that. So come and celebrate if you're a believer in Christ. If you have any kind of allergies, we have some uh, gluten-free, nut-free bread uh, in the middle there if you need that. Just grab that as you come up. There'll be two lines in the front. Uh, just dip a piece of the bread in the cup and uh, they'll uh, coach you through that. And then if you're not a believer in Christ, we just pray that you would stay uh, seated. We have some prayers in the city life to, to think on your relationship with Christ. And I just want to say that um, Jesus didn't come to start a religion or make us religious. He came to cultivate a new relationship with him and God. I hope you hear that this morning. I hope you hear that this series. It's not about being religious and checking off the boxes, but it's about knowing God and following him and enjoying him all our days. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the prayer that he taught us. God, may it be implemented into our lives. And through it, may we see our lives change and may we see the lives of others change and our world change. Your kingdom come, your will be done.